But there's photographers who understand that what they're doing is powerful and they try to use that for good. They try to use that towards a public good and not make it about themselves. That's the defining line. So that's what I tell photographers. Don't make it about yourself. Make it about who and what you're photographing. Hi, I'm Richard Sherum, and I'm a documentary photographer based in Texas. I mainly focus on socioeconomic or social injustice type work. I have it's almost like a, an unspoken, and I hate to word, use the word connection because it's so overused, but it's almost like a, an unspoken ether between all living things. And I think that certain people are drawn to or afflicted with, depending on the individual, this obsession with tapping into that ether. So some musicians have been very good at that. And when they do it correctly, and they write music in that regard, it instantly becomes popular and it becomes a part of something that people instantly recognize and they wanna be a part of. And I think that when musicians do that correctly, when poets do that correctly, when screenwriters do that correctly, and directors, and even photographers, I think that it has and can have a lasting impact that inevitably becomes timeless, meaning that it's relevant now just as it was relevant at the beginning of our evolution and will be relevant a thousand years from now if we're still alive as a species. For me, I have found documentary work, photography specifically, as my way of expressing my emotional response to a charged type of living. And it's also, it's two-sided. One of it is, it's a way for me to, in a way, almost be on this ever-present journey towards enlightenment, towards this understanding of humanity and who we are as a species and what we're capable of, what our potential is. And every single time I get really close to a stranger or I photograph a family at their home, and I've been allowed to document that vulnerability, and therefore I become vulnerable in that transaction, then I get to dip my feet into that ether. I get to experience that charge way of living. And that emotional response gets translated through that image and hopefully is understood by the general public whenever they see that work. So documentary photography for me has become the most efficient means of me doing that. And going back to being a two-sided, I understood that aspect of it when I started doing documentary work, that it allowed me to get into this realm of humanity that most people only get to experience every once in a while, maybe once or twice in their life. And I get to experience it over and over and over again. There's that side of it. But then when I realized that I could actually use that ability and that power, because it is a power for some sort of public good, well, then it became this almost visual manifesto. I decided that it wasn't enough for me to experience this charged way of living, this hyper-focused, all-embedded way of living, immersed way of living. That wasn't enough for me. When I realized that I could actually do something with that work and actually try to you know, help either the subjects themselves or a, a broader issue, 
by using these subjects as, and I hate using the word use, but I mean, but the, you know, but taking advantage of the of the work that I'm producing at that moment to speak about something larger than themselves and to speak of this of this larger picture that we're all a part of anyway. And once I figured out that I could do both of those things at the same time, well, then at that point, it's almost as if I didn't have a choice. If I chose to photograph any other way or photograph any other genre of photography, fine art, conceptualism, where most of that is focused on the self and not others, then I don't think I would be able to live with myself. I don't think I could sleep at night knowing that I had this ability to get close to people and that they allowed me to witness their vulnerability and to be vulnerable around me, a complete stranger with a camera. And so once I figured out that I had that ability and that I could do that respectfully, you know, then I decided to, to use that ability towards the public good instead of just using it for myself. And that's where I get, you know, really strong opinions about kind of the way this industry has grown and, and the direction that it's taken when it comes to photography and what's being heralded as, as great photography. Not that I think my work is great, but there's a lot of great photographers out there doing documentary type work that are investing a lot of themselves, a lot of themselves psychologically, physically, time-wise, you know, the one commodity that you can never get back. And they're doing all of that for that same purpose to speak about something larger than themselves so that the general public can view these images and realize that they're part of something larger than themselves. And to me, that's the true power of photography. I don't necessarily appreciate it as much as the majority of people probably when I see that ability and that power being used for self instead of others. So I chose documentary photography essentially because that's my way of giving back to you know, this overall connection that we all have as people, because I was given this ability to be able to get really close to people. And, and, and that's my way of kind of paying it back. I think the river that is me now and my spirit towards working in this field has many tributaries. And I think that ultimately it comes from growing up in an environment where, you know, my parents were working class their whole families were working class. Most of them never went to college. I grew up in a lower income area, um, lots of crime. And I also grew up in a mixed race family. I don't look it. I look completely Caucasian. Um, but my grandmother was from Piedras Negras, which is on the other side of the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, it's always been kind of fuzzy about exactly how she got over with her parents, uh, whether they brought her across the river or they brought or the mother was pregnant. My great grandma was pregnant when she came over and then had my grandmother right on the U.S.-Mexico border. So I grew up with this kind of weird situation where my father looked really, really, really Hispanic and my sister looked really Hispanic. She kind of took after him as far as his skin color and his hair color, really dark, really dark brown, black hair, black eyes, dark skin. And my mother was from Southern Alabama. So she is about as white as you can get. And so I, my skin color, and I was born with blonde hair, even though I have dark brown hair now, but when I was born, I had blonde hair, blue eyes. So when people would see us, they would think that, you know, that we were split families that got together, that I was born under my mom for someone else and that my sister was born under my dad from someone else. But no, my, my sister and I are, have the exact same blood. She just 
uh, looks more darker than I do. But growing up in the environment that I grew up in, there's not a lot of people that look like I did. Uh, most of them were Hispanic. So I dealt with a lot of issues growing up dealing with race. And I had a lot of hardships because of that from teachers, from authority figures, baseball coaches, uh, even police who roamed our neighborhood and roamed our area. They basically, you know, were not very kind to the young people when I got into my teenage years, uh, always assuming that we were in getting in trouble. They would assume that I was down there for buying drugs or something because I didn't look like anybody else. And so that's a whole other story. But so I grew up with a lot of this confusion about race and not understanding why people would treat me differently. And then I'd see people treat my grandmother differently, you know, who was full Hispanic when we go somewhere together. Uh, and they, they assumed that she was uh, babysitting me for a white family because she's 4'11 and pure Hispanic. And so I would see people treat her differently based on her skin color in different parts of the city I grew up in. But then in my neighborhood, I would be treated differently. And, you know, and I hate this whole like reverse racism nonsense. There's no such thing as reverse racism. There's just racism. Whenever you judge anybody based on the color of their skin preemptively, then that's racism. I don't care who it is or which direction it comes from or which direction it's going. And so I grew up with a lot of that. I would get really frustrated as a child because I didn't understand why people were treating me differently just based on how I look. And they'd call me names. But then as soon as they got to know me, they'd speak to me. Then all of a sudden they were my friends. And they realized we were from the same neighborhood. We had the same money problems. I grew up poor. They grew up poor. And that kind of clicked something in my brain growing up. And that told me that a lot of that sort of behavior is based purely on ignorance, either willful or unknowingly. And that if you just talk to someone and they get to understand and know you as a person, then they understand that you and his, them have way more in common than both of you realize. And that that clicked in my brain as something like, okay, now I understand. Now I understand why people who are ostracized based on the color of their skin or their, their language or whatever, or their socioeconomic status, that all it takes is just a little bit of understanding. And then people from the outside can realize that those individuals uh, are closer to them than they realize. So you couple that and growing up having this kind of admiration for the working class and those who live off of the land, because my grandma, my grandparents in Alabama lived in the woods. I saw these two different worlds and I had an, ended, up, ended up growing an appreciation for those salt of the earth type people, people who work, who bloody their knuckles at work. And also with that realization that if people just, if there was just some sort of way to kind of break through this ossification of apathy that most people have towards one another, that within that is that unspoken connection between people that can be tapped. And if that can happen, then anything is possible. Any change is possible. And so it was just almost like a theory, a hypothesis for me growing up. And then when I started to do photography, I started to realize that there's a reality to that and that I could tap into that. When I went to community college and took my first photography class, my only photography class, it was a black and white film 101 class, you know, very basic, uh, where you learn how to process film and stuff like that in a dark room. Once I kind of discovered that, and I've always been obsessed with time and the notion of time as well. And I'll tell you a quick story about that too here in a minute. But once I started doing that, then I immediately almost started getting work as a photographer. I got commissioned by the Meadows Foundation, dropped out of college. And then essentially dedicated my life to documentary work ever since then. And that was in 2006. Uh, and I've been doing that as, ever since. I feel like I've been swimming upstream, as you mentioned earlier, ever since. Um, because the world has moved on to, like you said, that visual sugar. You know, it's been very 
difficult to stay afloat as a photographer. And it's, it's, it's not so much sad or frustrating for me. I'm used to it. I'm more frustrated for all of the other photographers out there that, you know, may give it, may give up in that process. And, you know, we're, we're missing out as a, as a civilization and as a species because of it. The other reason, one of the other tributaries, I'll call it, is I had this unhealthy obsession with time. I still do, really, uh, since I was a child. I was always conscious of the fact that I was a child and that it would end one day. So what I would do was, before I even understood what photography was or anything like that, I would go outside, and I don't know if you've ever done this as a child or as an adult, but when it's really bright outside and you're outside in the backyard or in the front yard, and you've been outside for a while, and all the light has been absorbed into your into your eyes, and you blink your eyes or you close your eyes for a second, you'll see a negative image of whatever it is that you're looking at. So if you're looking at a tree with dark bark and you close your eyes, it'll become white you know, for half a split second, and then you'll see it fade. And I became obsessed with that as a kid, that I had the ability to stop time for just a millisecond. And so we'd be outside, I'd be playing with my friends and stuff like that. And I'd just be having a great time and I'd realize, oh, this is never gonna, this isn't gonna last. I'm gonna grow up and I'm not gonna be able to have this freedom. And this is, you know, at six, seven years old, I was feeling this way. I would used to blink my eyes while I was playing. I remember, my, so my dad saw this one time and he called me inside thinking I had something in my eye or whatever. And he's looking at my eyeball. And I was like, no, no, no. I was trying to explain to him what I was doing. And he said, he just starts laughing. He goes, oh, you're taking pictures. And so that's when he showed me he had Life magazines, he had National Geographic magazines. And that's when I realized that people were able to actually do this, you know, and actually able to stop time. And that was fascinating to me because time is the one thing that, that controls everything. And it has for all time. And it's the one thing, it's like sand that goes through your fingers. The, the harder you try to grip it, the faster it goes. For me, there was this invention, more powerful than video, which is a bunch of photographs, and more powerful than painting or any of that, any other medium, could not equal the power of stopping time that allowed you to really indulge yourself in that second, that, that 160th of a second to really look at all the things that your brain could not comprehend at that time, you know? And so that to me only exposed like this richness of everything that is happening all the time. I mean, in order to understand and appreciate time, you have to slow time down mentally. And you have to, I mean, think about it. The best photographers out there, the, the photographers that I idolize and that I that I grew up looking at and and really fell in love with, had this like you could tell by looking at the image that they were just hyper connected to that fraction of a second because they can repeat it. If you have a photographer that has one image like that and the rest of their work is you know dressed in banality, then you know it's a one-off. They didn't really mean to do it, it was just an accident. But when you have photographers that can repeat that over and over and over again, Abbas, Eugene Richards, Gordon Parks, huge inspiration of mine, James Natway, uh, Larry Tao. You know, you have photographers like that and they repeat this over and over again, then they are hyper-connected to their surroundings. And that's where I wanna be. I want to be totally immersed in everything that's happening around me. 
at all times because that's the only way to live. If you're not living that way because of this obsession of time that I have, I know that I'm already on my deathbed. When I was six years old, I knew I was already on my deathbed as an older man. That everything between that point and that moment when I take my last breath has already happened. It's that quick. Because I know that when I am on my deathbed, that's what it's gonna feel like. It's gonna feel like everything is gone that quick. That as of yesterday, I was born and tomorrow I'm dying. So in order for me to connect myself to that ether, like that to me, that's the, that's the, I'm Ponce de Leon. That's, I'm looking for that spring of eternal life. And I think photographers like that and photography like that is in a sense, a way of talking about a fear of death. And when you have photographers that are hyper-connected like that, it's because they understand the richness and the fullness of everything that's happening around them at all times. And they, it, it's a shame that I can't be everywhere all at once. That's how it feels. And so I can only take one drop out of the ocean at a time so that I can study it and learn more about it. And so I appreciate photographers like that. And I aim to be a photographer like that. I don't know that I ever will be that, but those are the photographers I look up to for that ability. And because of that, they live forever. That's why I, I just have like this natural disdain for other types of photography where people, you know, somebody shoots a, a plate of food and, it, and it's hanging at the museum of modern art. Like what? Like, I don't, I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't equate that to what I'm talking about. You know, to me, that's just purely self fine art conceptualism nonsense, you know, and I, I don't have a lot of patience for that. And so being meditative towards every single second around you, when you're a photographer like that, you're a photographer at all times and you have to regulate yourself. Otherwise you'll, it's like reaching the, for the secret too soon. You know, there's a lyric in a song, Pink Floyd, he talks about their lead singer going crazy. And he says, you reached for the secret too soon. And so I think that as a photographer, you have to regulate yourself. And when you try to tap into that ether, I don't know what else to call it, that connection, that, that thing that ties all living things. And so being meditative and being appreciative is the respectful part of that power. And so by, by slowing things down and not just clicking your way through life, you know, and machine gunning your way through a situation, you have to understand what's happening in front of you. Like I, you know, I started shooting digital back when I went to Cuba, obviously because of the logistical concerns of taking a bunch of film. And so I didn't really start shooting digital until about 2016. Um, I mostly shot film before that. And the thing I appreciated about film, especially being a broke photographer back then, is that, you know, I used to buy film in bulk and uh, Tri-X and I, it was just too expensive for me at that point. And I just, I didn't want to waste shots. So I was very careful about waiting till everything came into where I wanted it to be before I took that image, before I took that time for myself. 
that took that sliver of time for myself. And so I, I learned to concentrate on what I was looking at instead of relying on the technology. And even today, you know, talking about blinking when I was a kid, I still do that. When I'm walking down the street and I see something really interesting, I'll blink for half a second. And I'll not so much to see that negative image in my mind like I used to, but just as kind of like a, a homage to that second. And I'm like, mm, that's it. Boom. There it is. And so I'll still take images. I'm, I'm, I'm always that photographer. It's just whether or not I have my hammer and my anvil in my hand while I'm doing it. So that's the meditative part. And I think that if you're an individual who's living that sort of life, you have to be respectful of that. You're, you've been given this ability to see, and you have to be respectful of that. Um, and that's, that's, that's you being meditative and understanding and not just raping the moment. You know, so even though I shoot digitally now, you know, I'm not blasting away. I may go, like, I just went to South Dakota to photograph a military funeral a week and a half ago. And I think I took a total of maybe 100 images in four days. I mean, I know photographers that would have shot 3,000 images in four days. Why? You know, that's when I see a photographer doing stuff like that, that tells me immediately it's a dead giveaway that this individual was not connected to that moment. Like, you have to be part of it in order to photograph it honestly. You have to be part of it to document it honestly. Otherwise, you're doing an injustice to that subject. You're doing an injustice to you as a photographer who's decided to, to live this path. It's a calling. And you have to do it respectfully. And then you're also doing an injustice to the general public and the viewer because it's a cheap shot. And so I want to make sure that the photograph that I take was completely 100% intentional. Even when I photograph and I'm on scene, and I'm photographing, even though it's a digital camera, I never pretty much never look at the back of my camera to see if I got it in quotations. I don't ever usually even see the images until I get all the way back home and download them. And sometimes that's a week or two. I don't, I don't scroll through the images at night in my bed, wherever I'm sleeping, wherever I am, I'm at in the country or in the world. I, you know, Oh wow, there it is. You know, I, I don't do that because if I didn't get it, you know, if I go back home finally and I download the images and I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't get the one that I, that when I was there, I didn't get the image that I wanted. Guess what? I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve that image. I didn't deserve that image that I wanted because I wasn't as connected as I should have been in that second. I got anxious. I either shot it just a little bit too early or I shot it just a little bit too late. So that's the meditative side of that. You know, I put myself out there when I go work. I don't just go into a situation and just start blasting away. I'm talking to these people. I'm getting to know, know them. I'm eating dinner with them. I'm breaking bread with them. Sometimes I cry with them. I'm just as much a part of that. I know other people like to, to say, oh, no, you're no, you're not. It's just a, a power dynamic and you're, this is colonialistic behavior and you go in there and you just photograph. That's bullshit. You go ask any of those people all over the world. Cuba, Japan, all over the United States for Spina that I've done, all the American homicide work that I've done, being with detectives at home, photographing them and their families, photographing these victims' families, photographing these prisoners in prison. You go ask any of them, I challenge you, that every single one of them will tell you that I was there and that I was a part of something. And uh, in fact, there's a documentary film being made right now. I, I've been kind of keeping quiet about it, but... Uh, there's a filmmaker out of California 
uh, who's doing a film on Spina, doing a documentary film on on myself and the work, and doing uh, doing it on Spina Americana on the concept of it. And what he's doing is he's going back behind me, and he's interviewing some of these subjects that I've photographed that are going to end up eventually in in Spina Americana in the book. And he's essentially just going and talking to them about how their life has changed since I took that since they met me, and, I mean, and not as a result of me, but I mean just in time, what, what's different since I've met them two years ago and photographed them, you know, in that situation. And not only that, but what their interaction was with me, how they met me and that kind of thing. Like how, because, you know, one of the questions I get all the time is about access. I get private messages about this all the time from photographers from all over the world that say, man, how do you get access to people? You're always photographing in very vulnerable situations, like the military funeral or uh, prisons. How do you get into these prisons? How do you get into these murder scenes? How do you photograph these detectives at home? How do you get this access? I mean, I photographed children with cancer for, for almost four years. You know, how are you getting into these hospitals and photographing medical procedures, children getting spinal taps, two-year-olds? And it's simple. It's not as difficult as you think it is. Everybody always assumes because of these divisions between people. And if you just talk to individuals and let them know who you are and what you're doing, 99% of the time they say yes because they understand that they're part of something larger than themselves. They understand that because now they're on the, the other side of that issue that you're discussing. You know, these victims' families, The one of the most common things that I hear from them is, oh, we used to see this on TV. We used to, I used to feel sad when I they'd be interviewing a mother who lost her son. But I would just turn the TV off and go to bed. And now my son is killed. Now I'm that mother. The reaction we've been taught is is against community. You know, that, that oh, well, I'm not going to go talk to that person because they're, they got a tough situation. I'm not going to go talk to them. When in fact, it's the opposite that needs to happen. And so that sort of immersion, that, that, that immersive lifestyle, you know, you said that you watched the Columbia uh, speech that I gave, and the entire last section of that lecture was aimed primarily at all the students in that audience because I was begging them essentially to not give in to these, these industry trends where documentary work is, seen, is being seen as intrusive to go out there and, and immerse themselves into the world. They have to. This world will not get any better the further we get from each other. You know, me understanding the differences between people and how there really aren't a lot of differences in that the divisions that we have between individuals are purely transitory and obstructive. And that's all it is. I don't care where you're from, what language you speak, how much money you have in the bank account. You and I have 99.8% similarities. I don't care about culture. All, all of those things are, are based in a root understanding of humanity and if you can tap into that you can go anywhere and you can do anything and you can assimilate with anybody i'm not a fan of this new theory that only people who have an understanding of this language can photograph people with this language only people who have this particular culture can photograph this 
these people with this particular, you know what I mean? It's like, that, to me, that's, that, that's the antithesis of the power of photography. The power of photography is the ability of, a, of an individual to go and discover something and discover a part of themselves in that process. And not only that, but serve as an ambassador for other people to come and share knowledge. You know, the, this idea of segregating knowledge and segregating people is uh, anti-liberal and anti-progressive. Um, we need to, we need to be more immersed with one another and not oh you don't belong here so you can't go here. That's bullshit. That's fascist ideology to me, and I resist against that. And you know I encourage everybody with a camera or a guitar or a pen to resist against that. That's bullshit. Uh, it's destructive and it's anti-progressive. Being vulnerable, it's a transaction that happens when I go and photograph. I'm also putting myself out there. I mean, I've been, I've been almost killed, physically hurt. I mean, when I went, when I went and photographed in Las Vegas, I went and photographed the people that live underground. There's close to 2,000 people that live underground in Las Vegas. Most people don't know that. There's a lot of people in Vegas who don't even know that. And they all live in the tunnels underground. They each have their own communities. They have mayors of their communities down there. They barter. They have their own economy system. Law enforcement does not go down there because their radios don't work in the tunnels. So it's basically a lawless society. It's like Mad Max down there. That's not even an exaggeration. And the documentation of those people is scarce. There was, a, I think, a couple of small documentary films made about it, but it didn't do it justice. And uh, it was more exploitive than anything. And as far as someone going and taking still photos, I didn't find anybody that had ever done it. Because it that takes time. And so I went down there, my original assignment, I was assigned to go out there and photograph these people. And the magazine only gave me two to three days at most. And I stayed eight. Even though they only paid me for two to three and I ended up losing money on the venture, I couldn't just parachute in there and photograph for two or three days and get decent work. I needed to go in there and actually immerse myself. And I did that. So I did that for eight days. And the very first day I went down there, because they were not used to seeing someone with a camera that they could easily just take. <laughs> There's no law down there. I would have been helpless. I didn't have an escort. The very first day, I almost got stabbed. And I spoke to him, the guy that was trying to stab me, and uh, let him know what I was doing. And, and then he invited me into his community. And then after that, I was essentially going from community to community and photographing people as far and deep as you can in those tunnels and to get an image of who these people are. Why? I didn't, I didn't make any money on it. You know, it's never been published other than in that magazine. And the magazine didn't even publish most of those images. They posted other portraits and stuff that I took outside of the tunnels. You know, nonprofit people that are trying to help those people in the tunnels. So the magazine butchered the story as far as the photos are concerned. Why put myself into that danger? Why expose myself? Because I had to do justice to why I was there. And that's that vulnerability part of it. And I know a lot of photographers are not willing to do that. But hey, man, if you're not willing to do that, then you're doing an injustice to your subjects. You have to put yourself into there. That's why I have so much respect for some of these photographers who aren't being assigned and they aren't being paid and they're going into Ukraine. They're going there to document history. Now, there's a whole bandwagon effect, of course. You got a plethora of photographers out there who are trying to make a name for themselves. And you got a lot of photographers that are doing that, essentially hoping that they'll make a name for themselves, which I think is the wrong uh, motivation. But you have photographers that are going out there because they understand that that's important. 
and they're documenting it. And they know fully well that that work may die on their hard drive and they're, they're content with that. Those are the people, those are the photographers that need to be in the limelight. Those are the ones that need to be published. Not these people photographing lamps and photographing their plates of food. And that's why I said in that Columbia, if you watched it at the end, when I told the students, don't photograph your feet in order to speak about migration. Go and document those people that are experiencing migration. Put yourself in that situation. Document it honestly. How do photographers avoid exploiting their subjects when it comes to the poor, marginalized, the overlooked? Because talk about this parachuting effect, which I think is why some people are like, only insiders can be documenting that because there's been too much of that extraction mm-hmm. where they just come in and it's they skim off the top and then they leave. And I think there's been a rich history in the photography of people photograph, wanting to photograph the poor mm-hmm. more because it's it's almost the motivation that can come across as something that, that they seem f- it's a foreign or exotic like it's the opposite of going to like a, a really beautiful place they mm-hmm. want to go the other way yeah. on the spectrum and it's this kind of exotic attraction in a weird way so how how can how can photographers that want to cover those do it in a non-exploitive way that's honest and true and helpful I understand that some of those criticisms are valid. There's a there's a long history of photographers, like you said, parachuting in and being exploitative. And I think that's understand it's understandable and that's important to recognize. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all photographers going to somewhere foreign or going to somewhere else other than their home neighborhood uh, is exploitative. And these people tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, photographically, and they're willing to kneecap photographers who have this drive, as I do, and as some of these other photographers that I mentioned, and the ones that aren't even mentioned, they're willing to kneecap them as individuals and speak negatively about them as individuals, even though they don't know them personally, because they just assume that they're part of that class. I think that the obsession with photographing poverty and all that poverty porn and stuff like that, yeah, I got out of hand for a while. And you have to be extremely careful when you're documenting that type of stuff to not be seen as being one of those photographers. But I think it all started from a place of good initially. Initially, it had good intentions. You had Jacob Reese, you know, photographing the tenements in New York. He helped change all the housing laws in the early 1900s, which saved countless lives. When he went and photographed inside the meat factories in the early 1900s and exposed them for how filthy they were, because people were dying from salmonella and E. coli all across the United States at the time. And there was no FDA to warrant that. And he, like when Teddy Roosevelt saw those images from Jacob Reese, first in New York, and then as president, he helped usher in laws to help protect food and drug. And that's how we got the Food and Drug Administration. Partially because of Jacob Reese, a photographer journalist, you know, who went and cracked the story on meat factories and places like that where, you know, they just, they had no sanitation. So it started with good intentions to try to help those that are being photographed. But then they became objects of desire for photographers who saw work like that and were motivated by work like that to try and also put their two cents in. You know, there's a famous story of a photographer. I can't remember his name right now, just because I'm trying to think of it. But he photographed a starving boy in Ethiopia in the 80s. This is when they had the huge famines. And uh, there was a small little child. He's probably about two years old. And you see him. I can see the image in my head right now. And he's bent over on the ground. He's emaciated. 
you know, he's got the swollen belly. You can see his skull clearly through the skin and his, on his head. And he's bent over on the ground. The ground is dry from the famine, and the, just not having any moisture in the dirt whatsoever. And there's a flock of crows and vultures standing around this kid. He's still alive. They're waiting for him to die. And this photographer took this picture and ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize over it. And you know what he did? He committed suicide. Okay? So there's photographers who understand that what they're doing is powerful. And they try to use that for good. They try to use that towards a public good and not make it about themselves. That's the defining line. So that's what I tell photographers. Don't make it about yourself. Make it about who and what you're photographing. You know, I photographed homeless children for two years, and that was tough. And what makes that different, and what I feel makes that different, is that I was in Dallas. We have a big homeless problem, okay? I know there's a lot of problems where there's homelessness, homelessness in the United States, but in, in Dallas especially, it's, it's a really big problem because Dallas has been growing exponentially for the last 20 years. Everybody's moving here. So we've had a really big problem with housing. We've had a big problem with unemployment and uh, homelessness. And so what prompted me to do that work was I wanted to do something about that. I had done something in 2015 about, or I tried to do something about it in 2015. Right across from City Hall is, is one of the Dallas Public Libraries where tons of homeless people sleep outside. So everybody in City Hall can see them every day. So what I did is I did a project called Observe Dallas in 2015 where I took photographs of not just homeless people, but uh, just street photography, basically. And then I convinced, I don't know how I did this to this day, but I convinced five buildings in downtown Dallas, one of the largest downtowns in the United States, to allow me to drill into their buildings and hang photographs that were 40 feet by 60 feet. It was the largest exhibition in, I think, Texas history. Uh, I know at least in Dallas history, as far as largest, as far as the size of of the work. And it was for two months. And the only images of homeless people that I put were the ones on the building directly next to City Hall. And that helped initiate an entire conversation about the homelessness situation in Dallas. The mayor tweeted about it. And at first I did it anonymously. I did all that anonymously. Took a lot of money. It wasn't about me. My name got leaked to a, to a small publication in Dallas. It, you know, it wasn't one of the big publications. It was kind of like an underground publication. My name got leaked there and then it just took off. And then at that point, I was like, well, I might as well promote it and try to get as many people understanding what I'm doing so that it doesn't get misconstrued. So that was the Observe Dallas project. And then in 2018 to 2020, I was when I started photographing homeless families in Dallas. And the reason why I did that is because it was getting worse. And when I found out that there was close to 6,000 homeless children in Dallas, and of those 6,000, about 4,000 of them went to public school. That's when I thought, okay, this is, I'm going to do this now. Because I understood back in 2015 by just photographing homeless adults, photographing homeless men, and photographing homeless women, the public doesn't care about them. The public is apathetic about you know a 50-year-old man who is drunk on the corner of the street or who has schizophrenia and has mental health issues. They don't care about them anymore. And I knew that if I went and photographed those people again, it would, it would land like a lead weight. It wouldn't do anything. So I thought, what is the thing, like you were talking about earlier, what is the thing that I can break through this force field? What is the one element that I can use, the tactic? Because for me, I'm an activist. 
You know, I'm an activist who happens to be a photographer, not the other way around. And so it's all about chipping away at that ossification of apathy, public apathy. How do I get in? And the way that I did it was understanding that 4,000 of these kids went to public school, which means that this kid is sitting next to another kid who is not homeless. That's the key. By getting the general public to understand that their children, there's children in their kids' classrooms that are sleeping in their car or sleeping on the street every night. So how do you photograph that? Instead of just photographing kids starving, how do you photograph kids starving or, or living in their car? Yeah, you could do that. But what's more important is them being kids. So I photographed this girl practicing her math in her van that she lived in. She hadn't been to school in two years. She still practiced math. She was 11 years old. I went and photographed in the homeless shelter called Family Gateway in Dallas, the only shelter in Dallas that caters to, to full families. So I photographed children being children. And when the general public understood that these children were also homeless and living in a shelter or living in their car with their parents, well, then, then that became this uh, unifying element. Texas Monthly put, did a story on it, and the Family Gateway, the shelter that uh, did the story, or you know that, that I did some of those photos, they were talked about in that article, and I think they received like a million or a million and a half dollars in unsolicited donations from this story. Okay, and it, I shot it over two years, and I'll, I'll be completely transparent about this. You know what Texas Monthly paid me for, for, photograph, for, for doing that? I didn't shoot it for them. I did it for myself without any knowledge that I would get published in Texas Monthly or anything. I just went and did it because it needed to be done. That's the other dividing line. If you have photographers that are like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to go do that if I'm getting paid. Well, then to me, you're not a photographer. You're just a musician that plays cover songs. Okay. You're not contributing to the world. And so I went and did this on my own. And then what happened was, is that a local news station found out about it because one of the mothers that I photographed, they were featuring in a story about homelessness and she let them know. And then that, news reporter guy did a story on me and the project and everything like that. Texas Monthly saw that. Then they wanted to do a story on it. So that was two years after I had already started that. So like I said, going back to what I was saying, Texas Monthly paid me $3,000 for that story. So basically $3,000 for two years of work of getting up at six o'clock in the morning to photograph these kids, going to the bus stop, you know, going in the middle of the night to photograph them living in their cars, sleeping in their cars with them a couple of times. You know, that $3,000, that's nothing. That, that, I mean, doesn't, that doesn't even, it's not even a drop in the bucket of the expenses that, and time that I had in doing all of this. It's not about that. It's about getting that work out. And once that work got out and Texas Monthly did that story and Family Gateway got all that, all those donations and also allowed the shelter to use those images for promotion and marketing so that they could get more donations then that, that's when it became clear and evident to proof positive what I said earlier, that I could use this ability for the public good. That's what you do. You know, when, when you have a photographer that goes and pho photographs, not knowing or if their work will ever be published, that that's not the main concern. That's the people that you need to be following. So that, that's, how, that's my advice to photographers on how to not be part of the problem and be part of the solution. Hey everyone, Michael Howard here from Photo. 
I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode with Richard Sherum. This is a three-part podcast series. This was just the first episode. The next two, we'll be focusing on two different ongoing projects that Richard is doing right now. One is his American Homicide series, and the other is his Spina Americana project. If you would like to see more of his work and connect with him, uh, you can go to his website at richardsharam.com. We'll be having his uh, the link to his website and his Instagram in uh, the show notes. We'll be posting it also on our Substack uh, where we're posting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Photo and what we're building, you can go to photoapp.co and you can also subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. All these links will be in the show notes. I hope you got a lot out of this podcast with Richard and that he gave you plenty to think about. I hope he challenged you and that um, you'll be thinking about his words uh, moving forward. As always, thank you so much for listening.